I'm so glad you could join me today because we are going to talk about a story of fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles. No, we're not going to talk about the Princess Bride. It's the book of 1 Samuel, the story of David, Saul, Jonathan, and don't forget Abigail. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Thanks for joining us today. I am so grateful for the opportunity to teach this lesson. It's lesson number 23. The Lord be between thee and me forever. The second part of 1 Samuel. And what I said in the introduction was no exaggeration. This is one of the most dramatic stories ever told. As far as the elements of revenge and jealousy go, this story could outdo any Greek tragedy. But it also has, it, it truly does have true love and miracles, and it really does have giants and, uh, and chases and escapes. It's an amazing tale, and we start, we're going to start a little bit before the lesson does. Uh, the lesson covers the chapters of 1 Samuel 18 through 24. But we're going to start back from last week's lesson in chapter 14. Well, we'll start actually in chapter 13. So you'll remember Saul was chastised by Samuel for not being patient and for taking upon himself the duty of sacrificing before the battle. And Saul arrived and said, no, you didn't have the authority to do that. And now the Lord's blessing isn't with you. Well, we we, we touched light, lightly on it last week, but Saul was in a in a bind because here he was about to fight a battle and he was going in without the strength of the Lord. And this is a this is an amazing story that so often is skipped over. We talk about David versus Goliath and how David went single-handedly against this huge giant. And this is in in accordance with the ancient custom of champions. And uh, champion comes from the word for field and when when an army sends a champion rather than everyone going into battle, that champion takes the field for the entire army. It's almost like a proxy sacrifice of a sort. And so Goliath was the champion of, of the Philistines that day, and David was the champion of the Israelites. But a few chapters before that, here is Saul and the armies of the Israelites encamped against the Philistines without any blessing from God. And Jonathan, Saul's son, takes it into his head, I'm going to save everyone. And he takes his armor bearer, he takes one person with him, and he sneaks over into the enemy camp, and he says to his armor bearer, this will be a sign to us. If they, if they tell us to stay where we are, then we'll, we'll go back home. But if they, tell us, if they invite us to come to battle and they challenge us, then we'll know that that God's hand is with us. And I don't know why he got that idea, but perhaps the Spirit told him because when he arrived there, they, they challenged him to battle. And it says that Jonathan slew 20 men by himself and his armor bearer behind him in a, in a short area of, of uh, the battlefield. And once he 
commenced this work of slaughter, the Philistines started to scatter. And they, there was so much confusion that they it was almost like when Gideon went with his host of 300 against the tens of thousands of the Midianites, they started to fall upon each other. They had some traitors from the Israelites who turned traitor again and started to kill the Philistines. And there were people who had been too cowardly to come to battle that saw what was happening and joined in. And when Saul sees what's happening, he uh, he immediately instructs his people to, to chase the Philistines. And before Saul knew that Jonathan was gone, he commanded everyone, we're all going to fast and nobody's going to eat anything until I am avenged of my enemies. And this is one of the signs that Saul's pride has gotten the better of him. And that is that he sees the enemies of everyone, God's enemies as his own enemies. They've, they haven't, they haven't done wrong to Israel. They've done wrong to Saul personally. And so it's worth everyone going to battle for him to get personal revenge. And he, and he makes everyone take an oath that they won't eat anything. Well, Jonathan was gone during that. He was off saving the entire army and setting them all to rout and they're running away. And they pass through this forest and there's, uh, there's wild honey dripping from a honeycomb and Jonathan tastes some. And later on, Saul finds out about it, and um, this is this is another example of Saul's Saul's tragic flaw, as you might you might say, if you've ever studied Shakespeare. Uh, in a, in every tragic protagonist, there's a tragic flaw, some some problem, some personality flaw that they have that causes them to go from being great to being to falling all the way to losing everything, and then finally, usually dying. And Saul's tragic flaw, you can read, uh, we can go back to chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, when uh, Samuel says that the, your stubbornness is like idolatry. And the fact that you're not, you're not obedient, it shows God that you're stubborn. And uh, in fact, I, I made a mistake. It's not chapter 13, it's chapter 15. In verse 23, Samuel, this is the second time Saul fails to obey with the Amalekites. And he, um, this is when he fails to kill all of the animals and instead says he's going to offer them as a sacrifice. And in verse 23, Samuel says, Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And this is where I got the idea that Saul is an idolatrous man. It's because... When Saul is stubborn before the Lord, he's, he is valuing, he's esteeming the, the opinion of the people around him, their approval more than God's. And that's idolatry. That is equated exactly with idolatry in this verse and other places. And Saul is guilty of this sin. And he, he's willing to kill his own son, Jonathan, for, for breaking the oath, even though Jonathan wasn't there to make the oath, because he thinks that everyone uh, will, will approve of him if he stays to his, if he holds firm to his quote unquote word, even though uh, it doesn't apply in this case, but he, he's worried about what people might think if he lets Jonathan off the hook, even though Jonathan's his son. And uh, Jonathan is saved by the people. The people love uh, Jonathan. And so Saul allows him to survive. Why do I tell this story? Well, 
Uh, we're going to learn today, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about a particular poetic technique that is used in Hebrew. Now, oftentimes, if you've ever read a poet, a poem in translation, they don't translate well. Poetry is so tied in with the meaning of words and the length of words, rhyme doesn't translate, meter doesn't translate. So in English, those are the two main components of poetry. And the other main components have a lot to do with vocabulary and the sound of words. And none of those things translate. But one of the things that does translate is a particular a particularly Hebrew technique called parallelism. And we've, we've talked about it several weeks ago, but I'm going to talk about it again. Parallelism is, simply put, restating something, perhaps with slight changes. And it's used all over the Old Testament, and it's also used in the Book of Mormon. The first time we see that Saul is disobedient, then he's in trouble, and then he's saved by someone by a champion of Israel— is here in chapter 14 when Jonathan takes on the entire Philistine army by himself. Then we see it again right away. So chapter 13, Saul's disobedient. Chapter 14, Jonathan saves him. Chapter 15, we meet David because Saul was disobedient. Samuel is called by God to go anoint David as the future king. Then in chapter 16, there the Israelites are again in trouble. Chapter 17, sorry, chapter 17. So Goliath is challenging the entire Israelite army and David, what should happen, but David comes and as the champion of Israel saves everyone. So this is the reason I went back into last week's lesson was to point out this parallelism. It's, they were placed in this order on purpose, these two stories. They were put next to each other so that we could compare and contrast between them. And, and that is the point of parallelism. And in fact, there are more similarities, there are more parallels between the story of Jonathan fighting the Philistines and David and Goliath than we've even mentioned. For example, David goes against Goliath without sword and without armor. And it says the it says explicitly in the chapter before in chapter thirteen, before Jonathan goes, that there wasn't a smith found in Israel. And uh if you've ever played, this is for uh, those video gamers among my listeners, but if you've ever played one of those video games where you advance your civilization from from uh, one form of technology to another, uh, they're, they're pretty popular. And then if you ever manage to advance or upgrade your whole civilization before your opponent, then you can go from the, for example, from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age first. Then all your soldiers are stronger. Well, that's exactly what was the case between the Israelites and the Philistines. The Israelites are in the Bronze Age, and the fact that there's no smith found in Israel means there's no one there who knows how to work in iron. They don't know how to smelt iron and to forge it into swords, but the Philistines do. And so similarly to David rushing in against a giant with only a sling in his hand, Jonathan runs in alone into this camp, this armed camp, men, men with iron swords with only a bronze sword in his hand. And he utters a similar challenge. David says, you come with me, you come against me armed with your sword and your spear, and I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And that's, that's something very similar to what Jonathan says. They both say, I'm coming against you in the strength of God. And so they're not clothed with 
the the same level of technology. They don't have large numbers on their side. They they both understand that they are clothed in the power of God. And there are more similarities if you if you read those two accounts, you'll you'll be able to spot a number of them. Now there's a particular there's a very specific kind of parallelism that wasn't discovered until about the middle of the 19th century and many of you will know it well it's called chiasmus. It's named after the Greek letter chi which looks like an English x except in Greek chi is a k and it's the first letter of the name or of the word Christ Christos and it starts with an x as we would read it and the and the particular technique of chiasmus is called that because it's named after the letter x if you were to take there are, instead of one parallelism one thing repeated it's several parallelisms several things repeated in a specific order so one thing is stated then a second thing perhaps a third thing something more some number higher than two higher than one two or more and then the parallelism comes in when those things are restated in reverse order. And if you were to indent each time something, a new statement came, then you would unindent as the parallelism was completed. And when you were finished, you would get back to the original margin. And you could draw an X that would connect the first part of every line and or a chi. And that is why it's called chiasmus. So... Um, and we'll talk more about why I, I brought that up. But here we have an amazing parallelism, the story of Jonathan and the story of David. Now, when out, when first thing that happens with David is he's anointed king, and then right after he kills Goliath, and then it says that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan esteemed him as his own soul. Now, to get... A better understanding of what's going on here, we're going to go back again into chapter 14, chapter 13, where uh, Samuel tells, he first tells Saul, thy kingdom shall not continue. And uh, that is in chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. And Samuel says, uh, the Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. Now, the second time Saul disobeys in chapter 15, Samuel said unto him in verse 28, the Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. So David is called a neighbor of Saul. And a lot of times we think, because what we learn as Latter-day Saints is mostly the New Testament, we think that the um, the commandments, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, might, mind, and strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself, that Christ taught those first. Those are actually taught in the law of Moses. And when Jesus quotes, the, when Jesus teaches that, he's actually quoting scripture. And it's interesting that after he's asked, well, who is my neighbor? He gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. And a Samaritan is an enemy of a Jew. And the reason he tells that story is to show that even your enemy, even your enemy should be treated well. And I, kn I know that Christ had to realize, and I believe Christ was referring to this use also of the word neighbor, which is David and Saul were enemies. And 
Samuel tells Saul, I'm going to give it to a neighbor. And Saul is then given the choice, how are you going to treat your neighbor? Somebody who could be your enemy. You could, you could see him as an enemy. He's definitely a rival for the throne. So when we hear that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David and that he esteemed him as his own soul, then we see that Jonathan is, is keeping that, that commandment to love his neighbor as himself. He truly does care as much about David as he does about himself. And very soon after that, Jonathan gives David all of, his, all of the um, trappings of his position. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, uh, verse 3, it says, Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of his robe, of the robe that was on him, gave, gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and his bow and to his girdle. So he gave him all his royal trappings. And, and he knew, somehow D- Jonathan knew, maybe David told him, um, maybe they became friends and, and David told him, maybe Samuel told him, maybe he, the Lord told him. Somehow he knew that David was going to be king, and later on he says it outright. So we know that Jonathan knew that David had been anointed the next king, and it wasn't going to be him. He could have been jealous, but instead he loved David, and he rejoiced in his success. Jonathan was a glorious warrior, just like David was. He had done something, uh, in some respects, you could, you could look at it as even more difficult than fighting a giant. He'd fought an entire army single-handedly and set them all running. So they were both heroes. They were both war heroes. And they were both young, and they were both popular. And yet David is chosen over Jonathan, and Jonathan loves David as himself. He keeps that commandment. What does Saul do? Well, very soon after David has killed Goliath, the they go on a, a victory tour, you might say. They're, this The army, the king, the whole point of the king existing is to defend the country. And so they have to travel around to anybody that needs their help. And some, sometimes that involves just traveling. And when they come to a new city, the, the women will come out and sing, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And the scripture says, why are they, why are they saying that David has slain tens of thousands and me only thousands? And, he, and, that, and that is what starts Saul hating David. Now, something interesting occurred to me as I was pondering this, which is Saul also loved his neighbor as himself. The problem is, Saul hates himself, so he hates David. Saul knows that he's disobedient. And because he doesn't love himself, because he doesn't love himself enough to repent, go to Samuel in sackcloth and ashes and say, I've done wrong. How can I get back into the favor of the Lord? How can I make up for the sins that I've committed? He will not let go of his pride and uh, and so he hates himself, and and he also hates David. So it's interesting that both both Jonathan and Saul are keeping this commandment to love their neighbor as themselves, and their neighbor has been defined by Samuel as David. Their rival is their neighbor. So we have a we have a very interesting contrast. First, we had a, a comparison, a parallelism between Jonathan and David, 
And then we have a contrast between Jonathan and Saul. How they treat David is a direct reflection on how they feel about themselves. And Saul tries several times to kill David. Uh, It says many times in the next few chapters that an evil spirit of the Lord would come upon Saul. And we talked about what that might mean in the Joseph Smith translation. He clarified an evil spirit that was not from God. And I said, well, even if even if you read it as written, you could say an evil spirit that came from Saul's recognition that the Lord was displeased with him. That's one that's one way that that could be read. We know that God doesn't send evil spirits. He doesn't tempt anyone to do evil. Uh, so that understanding, anytime there's a translated work, ancient work, the, the understanding of the nature of God is important. And this kind of this kind of construction can be a stumbling block to some people. Um, the, the kind of construction where, as we'll discuss next week, uh, David as an old man uh, sets or, or puts people to death, certain people. And it seems in that verse like God has commanded it. And um, that could be a stumbling block if you think, well, God is a God of mercy. You know, does God change? And all of those things. Um, it's important to remember that the when we read the Book of Mormon, as as I'm sure you've heard, if if you've spent any amount of time as a member of the church, when we read the Book of Mormon, we're reading a book that was written for our day. We're reading a book that was compiled from ancient records by an inspired prophet and editor named Mormon. But when we read the Bible, we're not reading such a book. We're reading a book that was written for the people of that time. And the people of that time, they weren't thinking, is God merciful enough to spare even the wicked? You know, what? how can God be a God of death? Those people, what is interesting to them is, did God fulfill his words to the upholding of his people? And in that way, that is, those were the important details. And therefore, there might be a more merciful angle from the story that was left out because it wasn't important to the original readers or to the writer. So I believe that it is a a very valuable skill. Number one, not to shield yourself. You owe it to yourself to read these, to read difficult passages like can often be found in the Old Testament and and can even be found in modern church history. You owe it to yourself to understand things that people who don't believe in God understand, which is that there is occasionally something that just can't be explained. Is the nature of God to be good, or is the nature of God to be vengeful? Well, let's look at all the facts first, and you owe it to yourself to understand those facts. But then you also owe it to yourself to remember that we know the nature of God and we can choose to believe it or not. This is just a this is just a digression. It doesn't really have a lot to do with the lesson. It has to do with the with the Old Testament in general. And we can choose to believe that God is as we have learned about him that he's all powerful and and that he's good instead of evil, that there's no evil in him. We can choose to believe that or not. And when we come against a difficult passage, we can choose to look for an alternate explanation, 
Or we can say, well, this passage proves that God, that, that all this is a bunch of hogwash and that the people who believe in God are actually just fooling themselves because the obvious interpretation of this passage is that God is a vengeful God. And therefore he's just like Zeus and he's just like Odin. He's just like Thor and all these gods that were basically children who had great, who had superpowers. Um, it's important if you want to be a mature worshiper of God and a scholar, a student of the scriptures, it's important that you allow yourself to read those kind of passages and that you love God with your mind. And the way you love God with your mind, you can love God with your, with your heart and with your strength by doing other things, but the way you love God with your mind is by reasoning through this, this exact kind of question. Well, here we are uh, learning about followers of God who are, or, who are flawed and who receive revelations and who seem to be favored of him. And we ask ourselves, ourselves all these questions. Well, as, as I mentioned, the first parallelism is between David and Jonathan. And David is chosen, Jonathan isn't. The next parallelism between Jonathan and Saul. Jonathan is merciful and he loves God as well as loving his neighbor as himself. And Saul loves his neighbor as himself or hates his neighbor as himself and doesn't love God. And that's the difference. So the first parallelism is a comparison. Second one is a contrast. And the story of David is that he can be trusted with anything. Saul puts him over a captain. Uh, he puts him as a captain over a host of a thousand. And David can be sent into battle and he'll always be victorious. And the people just love him more and more. And there's no reason that as a king, Saul should not delight in the victories of one of his generals. And that's what David becomes. But he does. He does not delight in that. He tries to kill David with first with a javelin, at least twice. The first time we hear about this, it says he tried twice to kill him, and then later it tells another story of how he tries to kill him. So we don't know whether that twice included the second time or whether there's actually three. And I, I just say that because we probably have about 10 instances in the book of 1 Samuel where Saul tries to kill David directly, and then he'll forgive him, and David will come back, and he'll play the harp, and then Saul will get angry, and this evil spirit comes upon him, and he'll try to throw a spear again at David, and David will escape. Um, at one point, Saul's daughter falls in love with David, and David, his his eyes don't, don't lift that high. He thinks himself well beneath the daughter of the king, even though he also is the Lord's anointed. And we'll talk more about what it means to be the Lord's anointed. But Saul sees an opportunity in this. And he says, if you bring me a hundred foreskins of the, Philipp uh, the Philistines, it's almost like a, uh, it's almost like Indians taking scalps. And he says, go kill a hundred Philistines and show me the trophies. And then you can marry my daughter. And David goes and kills 200. And Saul was hoping that David would be killed in the attempt. He thought this would be a way to get rid of him. But he also thought, well, if Saul has given me this task, that means that I, that I can earn the chance to be worthy of his daughter. And this is David's first wife. Um, and her name is Michael. And at one point, she helps David escape from her, from her father. 
Jonathan helps David escape from from his father. Everyone is looking out for David because they love him. They can see that he's good, and they can see that Saul is being jealous and being wicked when he seeks David's life. At one point, um, in, in the beginning of the story, Saul tells Jonathan how much he wants to kill David, and then later he realizes Jonathan is on David's side. This is fascinating reading. I'm I'm, I'm not going to talk too much about what particular attempts on David's life happen in which chapter, because they all sort of fit the same pattern, but I recommend reading these chapters. All these later chapters of 1 Samuel, they flow like a novel. It's it's just uh, really interesting and entertaining reading. But then we get to chapter 24. And by this time, David has had to flee out of Saul's presence entirely uh, because Saul has made it known to everyone that he wants to kill David. And people who are loyal to Saul are also on the lookout to, to gain favor with Saul by killing David. And David by this time has earned the loyalty of so many people that when even when he goes into the wilderness, he, he can't go home from battle. When the army goes home, David has to go out into the wilderness and camp. His whole life is basically lived as a fugitive from justice. And there are people that go and find him because the the society has done them wrong as well. It's a band of outlaws. It's almost like Robin Hood. And he does he goes around doing good to people and and righting wrongs and protecting the defenseless as we'll as we'll discuss in chap discuss in chapter twenty five. So in chapter twenty four the play, the very place, so Saul is hot on David's trail. It's like his whole mission in life is to kill David, even though David has never done anything to him. And he's hot on David's trail. They're in the wilderness, and David is hidden in a cave. And it so happens that Saul is tired, and David and his men are in this cave, and they see Saul coming, and so they back up against the walls of the cave, and they hide in the shadows. And that very cave is where Saul decides to rest. And so he takes a nap in the cave. And all David's men are like, oh, David, go, now's your chance. Go, you know, stick your knife right between his ribs. And David, this is the, this is the first time David is, he rebukes them and he says, I could never do anything uh, in verse six of chapter 24. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed to stretch forth my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. Now, can you hear, first of all, can you hear the parallelism in that verse? The Lord forbid I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. Uh, and so he repeated himself, changing it slightly. If you want to compare and contrast those two statements, you can you can see that, well, that it's sometimes profitable to do that and it teaches you something. Well, in this case, we see the, the great reverence that David has for the anointed of the Lord. Why does David feel that way? Nobody else does. None of his men are like, well, we can't, yeah, you're right, we can't kill him. He's the anointed of the Lord. They're all like, what are you talking about? This is the guy who's trying to kill you. Here he is. He's in your power. Take, take his life and then take the kingdom. For heaven's sake, he's, he's done you wrong. And David just has too much respect for that. Now, this is not in scripture. This is my own speculation. But I 
believe that when David was anointed, when you know, we have the story of Samuel going to the house of Jesse, interviewing all of Jesse's sons, and then anointing David in front of his brethren. And I imagine that, and that is in the scripture, and then I imagine the scene continues with Samuel teaching David as he did Saul. When he anointed Saul, then he taught him what it meant, what it meant to be the anointed and and what it meant to be king, how he would be king. And I imagine that Samuel spent some time instructing David, hey, I've just given you uh, an ordinance of the priesthood. And we don't know if that was the ordinance, the only ordinance that Samuel gave David, by the way. There might have been more. But in any case, I believe that he taught him, you've been anointed to be something special. You have a mission, and God needs you. God is going to protect your life. He's going to spare you. This is one of the reasons, perhaps, why David was able to face the lion, the bear, and later Goliath, because he'd been told, this is just a pure guess from me, but it's an interesting idea, because he'd been told that he was the Lord's anointed, and that he had a mission to perform, and that God needed him on the earth because it was an important mission. Just like Christ, the anointed of the Lord, was was needed. He couldn't he couldn't end his life early and have everything turned out according to the Lord's plan. And that is the way that when, when David understood that that's what that meant to be the anointed of the Lord, he thought, I can't kill the anointed of the Lord. The Lord anointed him for a reason. And if his life ends early, he may not accomplish the mission of his life. And God wanted that. And God anointed him to do that. And so who am I to cut that short? And that is the profound reverence, the level of reverence that David has for the anointed of the Lord. And he understands it because he also is that. So Saul wakes up from his nap, doesn't realize the close shave he's had, walks out of the cave. When he's, when he's clear of the cave, then David follows after him and says, uh, this is verse 8 of chapter 24. So David... David stayed his servants with these words and suffered them not to rise against Saul. Oh, that's uh, verse 7. David also arose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My lord the king. So he, he, he calls after him and he says, Look, here, here's, a, here's the hem of your garment that I cut off with my knife. It could have been you. But why would I want to kill you? I love you. I don't want to kill you. You can see you were in my power. Here's the evidence. And I didn't do it. So why are you trying to kill me? You think, you think you've imagined that I, that I wish you ill. But here's proof. You can't deny it. That I don't. And that proof softens the heart of Saul. And he says, oh, David, you're a better man than I am. And he even says, um, here we are in verse 17. He said, to, he said to David, thou art more righteous than I. For thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. And um, in verse 20, And now behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thine hand. And so he makes him, he asks him to swear that he won't, he won't cut off his seed after him, and he won't destroy his name out of his father's house. And David does promise that. Which, why wouldn't he? He loves Jonathan. But it's clear that Saul knows that David is the one that's chosen to be after him. And as as Jonathan also knows. 
and then they have peace. Now, the lesson skips the next chapter, chapter 25. We'll come back to it. Then, parallelism. We're in chapter 26. Here's another attempt. David is a fugitive again. Saul is hunting him again. And Saul is encamped with his men while he's asleep. David comes over with his men. And instead of cutting off part of his clothing, he takes his spear and he takes his cruise of water. And then he removes himself a certain distance so that he can talk to Saul in safety. And then he, and then he announces what he's done. And he says, look, where's your spear? Where's your water? I have it right here. This is the proof again. So they have a very similar scene once in chapter 24 and once in chapter 26. And here's why I talked about chiasmus earlier. Because um, when you have... And a chiasmus doesn't, happen to, doesn't have to be an even number of elements that are repeated. The middle element can be unrepeated. It can just be the inflection point. The center, the center element of a chiasmus I call the inflection point. The point about which the entire, it's its kind of like the message. It's almost as if the writer of this poem, as it were, is trying to send a message and he composes or arranges the other elements of the poem so that you will pay attention to that middle thing and or pay more attention to it than you will to the others. And the closer it gets to the middle, the more important it is. And sometimes that middle thing is repeated once and sometimes it's only stated the, the one time. Well, um, I don't know, I don't know which, which one you will think this is, but we have chapter 24, David allowing Saul to escape. We have chapter 26, David again allowing Saul to escape, showing him the proof that he could have killed him. And then in the middle, we have chapter 25. And this is, I, I, I wish you all, I hope you all have now, by now, acquired a copy of the book, The Hidden Christ. This is probably James Farrell's favorite chapter in the Old Testament, and you'll see why. Um, or at least it seems to be. His praise is higher for this chapter than for any other passage, the way I read the book. But this is a, just a little episode about David. It has nothing to do with Saul, and that's why it's left out of the message. Or, sorry, left out of the lesson. But the message of this chapter is one of the most is one of the clearest things that force, foretells the coming of Christ and the nature of Christ in the entire Old Testament. So here's the story. There's a man named Nabal, and his name means fool. So um, we can know from the names, for example, uh, the names. A lot of the names in this chapter are Saul, which means asked. And um, incidentally, it also means called. So when you when you read in the Doctrine and Covenants, many are called, but few are chosen. And why are they not chosen? They set their hearts upon the things of the world. That's Saul. He was called and not chosen. Really interesting, because it's a noble name, and yet it also foretells his shortcomings. Samuel means heard of God. So someone who will speak... You know, quite often in the scriptures, the prayer is, I, I hope God will hear what I'm saying. And Sam, with Samuel, his very name says, of course, God will hear what he's saying. David means beloved. Um, 
And Jonathan means gift of Jehovah. So when uh, when the women said, oh, he thinks he's God's gift, well, Jonathan was. If you know someone named Jonathan, you can, you can tell them that. Their name means they're God's gift. And Jesse, the, the father of David, also means wealthy or a gift. And as we discussed last week, the name Goliath means splendor and greatness. So by paying attention to what these names mean, you can, you can sometimes understand the lesson that's trying to be taught, even though obviously that name was given at their birth. Well, this name was probably not given at Nabal's birth, but his, his name means a foolish man or somebody who's insensitive. So it was probably a nickname given to him by his friends that he, he didn't know how to get rid of. In any case, he has a wife named Abigail. And the name Abigail means the father's joy. So Abba, if you remember from the New Testament, when Christ is dying, he says, Abba, Father, why, why hast thou forsaken me? Um, so Abigail means the joy of the Father. And you can, that to me, that just calls the, the scripture to mind where in the, in the Book of Mormon, when God the Father announces Jesus Christ descending, and he says, Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In other words, this is, In whom I have glorified my name, hear ye him. So he's saying this, this Christ is the joy of the Father. And here's this wonderful character, Abigail, who's the wife of Nabal. Well, David and his men are living as fugitives in the desert, and they send to Nabal, who, and it says he's a man who's very great. Uh, in verse 2, the man was very great. He had 3,000 sheep, he had 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep. And he, and he sends to him and asks him for some food. And he says, you know, we've, been, we've actually been watching out for you. We've been defending your borders from those people around you, not only the Philistines and invading army, hostile armed forces, but thieves. And can you please give us something to eat? And Nabal says, well, who's David? Am I going to have to feed every person that makes a claim on what I, what I have, even though I don't know who they are, what they are? I never agreed to give David anything, which is true. And yet David is so mad when he hears it, and, and it is ungrateful also. And David is so mad that he hears it that he, and he says, gird on every man his sword. And, and David straps on his sword and they all walk down there. And he says, we're going to kill all the men at Nabal's place. Now, uh, as I was saying before, this is, you know, David is a is a godly man, and here and here we have a, an account of him going to revenge himself through murder, basically. And it, a difficult story, but it's a different time. So there are a number of ways we could talk about what that means, but um, enough to enough to point it out. And you can you can ask yourself your own questions about um, what David might have done if, if things hadn't turned out this way. But Abigail hears about this uh, exchange between Nabal and David's servants, where Nabal rebuffed them. And she realizes this is not going to go over well when the word gets back to David. So she takes it upon herself to put all kinds of provisions, even more than was asked for, on some, on some pack animals. And she rides out. She knows that David will be coming in force. And she rides out to meet him. And when he comes, she gets off of her 
horse and she bows herself to the earth and uh and it's interesting we can understand the difference between the words for lord because um if you look in the original hebrew if you look on bible hub and then you click on the hebrew link on on some of the verses in this chapter you'll see that um she calls david my lord and she says the lord is with my lord meaning david and you can see the different words that are used there it's kind of interesting it's uh, I don't think anywhere in the, else in the Old Testament do they appear in the same verse. That's why I point that out. Uh, in any case, she falls at his feet. Now, um, here we are in, uh, sorry, it's not a horse, it's a donkey she's riding. In, in um, 1 Samuel 25, verse 23, When Abigail saw David, she hasted, lighted off the ass, and fell before David on her face, and bowed herself to the ground. And fell at his feet and said, Upon me, my Lord, upon me, let this iniquity be. And let thine handmaid, there's that word again, the word that uh, Ruth applied to herself, that Hannah applied to herself, and the, the pinnacle of humility is for a woman to call herself the handmaid of someone, to say, I'm your servant, and especially to God. But in this instance, to David, I pray thee, let, let thine handmaid speak and hear, and hear my words. So she talks about, regard, uh, regard this man of Belial, which is basically somebody who has no judgment. Uh, you might remember that when Eli saw Hannah praying for a son in the temple, he thought she was a, a daughter of Belial, meaning maybe she was drunk or maybe she... Uh, was crazy, but she's talking to herself, and he says, Are you a daughter of Belial? Regard this man of Belial, even Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. In other words, he's a fool. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, thine handmaid, saw not the young men of my Lord. In other words, I didn't hear your request for food. Now, therefore... Uh, and we're skipping to verse 28. I pray thee, forgive the trespass of thine handmaid. Now, what has just happened? The first thing that that Abigail did was make restitution. She paid the price for someone else's mistake. The second thing she did was, she said, upon me let the iniquity be. And the third thing she did was, she said, now forgive my trespass. I want to draw your attention to um, Doctrine and Covenants, section 45, verses 3 through 5. And I, every time I read this chapter in 1 Samuel, I think of this, this scripture, although uh, I, I usually have to look up where it is to find it, but it's in, in Doctrine and Covenants 45. And it's where Jesus is talking and he says, Listen to him who is the advocate with the Father, who is pleading your cause before him. Now, this is what Jesus says to God about us. And you'll notice Jesus doesn't say to God, okay, he's our advocate, and he's going to plead for us, and he, do, and he could say to God, okay, look, they have, all the, they have all the commandments. Look how good they've done at keeping those commandments. Look how much they're repenting. Look how hard they're trying. That would be what you would expect, knowing what we know about the gospel. We've really got to repent in order to get Jesus and get God to forgive us. We've, 
We've got to do our part, right? Well, kind of. But Jesus doesn't say that. In verse 4, or verse 3, listen to him in verse 4 saying, Father, behold the sufferings and death of him who did no sin, in whom thou wast well pleased. Behold, the blood of thy son which was shed, the blood of him whom thou gavest that, thou, that thyself might be glorified. Wherefore, Father, spare these my brethren that believe on my name, that they may come unto me and have everlasting life. First of all, something I haven't noticed before, but Father, he calls, he calls uh, God Father, and then he says, in whom thou wast well pleased. He's saying, the, behold the sufferings upon the person in whom the Father was well pleased. Let this sin be, and then forgive that sin. Not because of what we have deserved at all. It doesn't mention us, even in passing. He simply says, God, pay attention to the sufferings and death of Jesus the Christ, of the sacrificial lamb, of the proxy sacrifice, and forgive their sin because I ask it, not because they deserve it. This is exactly what the way that Abigail is pleading for Nabal, a fool, as we all are when we sin, is the exact way that Christ pleads our cause before the Father, which is, Father, behold, behold my sin. Now forgive it, please, because of my sufferings and death. Isn't it fascinating? Abigail is teaching us more about Christ than anyone in any of the prophets in the Old Testament, simply by going out and trying to save everyone. Something else to think about. In interceding between David and Nabal, Abigail is not only saving Nabal. And in fact, she knows this. She says to David, I don't want you to commit this horrible sin of vengeance that you're about to, you're embarking upon. And everyone knows you're going to be king. You're anointed of God. You have this mission before you. And one day you're going to be glorified and, and you're going to sit on a throne and I don't want you to get to that point and then look back with regret upon this day. So Abigail knows, she knows she's saving her husband, but she also wants to save David from committing sin. Now, in that, we also have another parallel to Christ, which is when, and, and you, may have, you may have wondered, how is it that when I fail to forgive someone, that the greater sin lieth in me? Is that really possible? What if somebody murdered someone close to me? I mean, you can imagine any number of scenarios where a terrible sin is committed and then we don't forgive. Well, here, here we have an example, and, and that's, a, that's a very philosophical question. And even if you know that your job is to forgive, it doesn't mean it comes instantly. I'm not saying forgiveness should be easy. Uh, but it's interesting that what Abigail does is she also saves the person who was wronged. And that should give a... This is, this is a perfect example of someone who is a type of Christ teaching us something about the Savior. This is why we look for parallels with Christ in the Scriptures. Because when we find them, they, they can teach us something about the atonement. And here is Abigail, not only interceding on behalf of her husband but interceding on behalf of the person he wronged by taking upon herself her husband's sin and saying, forgive my trespass. She's also interceding on, the, on behalf of David and saving him 
from not forgiving. And isn't that the point of the atonement, that when we are forgiven, God is also saving us from not forgiving anyone who's wronged us? When we are forgiven, we can forgive others because they can be forgiven as well. And if we can receive that message, then then God has saved us twice. And that is what Abigail did. And I believe, this is my own conjecture, but I believe the writer of 1 Samuel, um, perhaps it was still Samuel at this point, but the books of Samuel include Samuel's death. So he didn't write all of it. Um, Sorry, I'm looking back into the scripture here. We're in 1 Samuel 25. I believe that these three chapters are a chiasmus. And this is the inflection point when she says, the, and this is the, and, and you could maybe consider it to be doubled up. The one time when she says, upon me let this iniquity be in verse 24. And then in verse 28, forgive the trespass of, thy hand, of thine handmaid. So upon me let the sin be, and then forgive my sin. Even though she never did anything wrong, she saves two people. And then on either side of this episode, which has nothing to do, and um, to, and to finish the story, David says, I'm so grateful that you came out. If, if you hadn't come out here, I for sure would have done exactly what you described and taken vengeance and uh, killed everyone. And so thank you. And, and he takes the food and leaves. Now, um, Nabal's home having a party and getting drunk with his friends and doesn't have any idea that this has gone on. But in the morning, Abigail tells him, and he's so scared that he immediately goes catatonic, and 10 days later, he dies. And when David hears about that, he sends for Abigail and asks her to marry him. An interesting, and she does, an interesting uh, turn of events. So Abigail becomes David's second wife. Um... In the next chapter, so here's another parallelism. In the next chapter, when when Saul is, he's stolen, or I'm sorry, David has stolen Saul's spear and cruise of water, and he's saying, uh, look, I've, here's the proof, once again, that I, have, that I mean you no evil. And Saul says, I have played the fool. I'm so sorry, David, I've played the fool. And erred exceedingly. You can see that in verse 21. Well, what did we just read? But that Nabal, the fool, was forgiven by David when a proper intercession was made. Um, to understand To understand this a little better, it's, it's necessary to know what eventually happens. Well, Saul, for years and years, chases David, tries to kill him, pretends to forgive him, says he forgives him, perhaps is sincere, but then it doesn't last very long, and then tries to kill him again. Finally, in the same day, Saul and Jonathan are both killed in battle. And David causes all of it. And, and this, you know, you could think, well, finally... This guy's dead. David, that could be David's feeling. He tried to kill me forever, and I refused to do him any evil. But now he's dead. At last I can 
relax and not worry about the king trying to kill me for no reason. But instead, David causes all of his men to mourn. And he says, let's mourn for Jonathan and for Saul. In other words, David looks upon these two men equally. He, he, he mourns for both of them, someone who hated him and someone who loved him. Now, there's a lesson in all of this. You, you can't just read each of these as isolated incidents. They're put together for a reason, and this is an inspired record. And the lesson is, because of the intercession of someone who is willing to take upon herself someone else's sin, and, and Saul is very purposely likened to Nabal by saying, I've, I've played the fool. Because of that intercession, that is why David is able to forgive Saul. We understand that David was able to forgive Nabal because there was someone, there was a savior, in this case his wife. And then by inference, by the, by the existence of this chiasmus, as I believe, then we can extend that same concept. And David is able to forgive Saul because of the intercession of the Savior. Not just a Savior, but of Jesus Christ. Because of his belief in Christ and his belief in God, he's able to forgive a man who tried for years to kill him and betrayed him in every way. It's not just a powerful tragedy, a powerful lesson. It is the lesson. It is the lesson of the scriptures that when we allow God into our hearts, we can find forgiveness even for those who have done us terrible wrong. One more, one more concept I'd like to discuss about the Lord's anointed. We talked a little bit about what it meant for Jonathan to love David as himself and for Saul to love David as himself. They both had differing amounts of esteem for David and for themselves. David had profound reverence and respect for Saul as the Lord's anointed. And let me humbly suggest, there are many of you listening who have been through the Holy Temple, and all of you have that to look forward to if you choose. If you've been through the Holy Temple, you've received the priesthood ordinance of anointing. In ancient Israel, priests were very rare. They, were, they had to be of a certain bloodline. The priesthood was not extended to everyone. And the same thing with anointing. It was very rare. It was only done for priests and for kings. But in the dispensation of the fullness of times, the saints who are the endowed saints are the Lord's anointed. And you can love, you can only love your neighbor as yourself if you love yourself. And the question that has occurred to me over and over again as I've read these chapters is do you have the same profound reverence for the Lord's anointed that David did? Not because Saul was being righteous, but because he had received this anointing from God that said, his mission is important. He's on this earth for a reason. And that, that mission should not be cut short. It shouldn't be 
despised. It should never be minimized. We should always treat it with respect and realize that if this person weren't there, the world would be a poorer place because God has chosen him. How many of us feel that way about ourselves and about the other endowed people around us and those people who may one day go to the temple to receive their endowment and their anointing? Do we have that level of profound respect for the anointing of God? Because when we're anointed, we are being anointed in the likeness of our Savior. The anointed, the Messiah, that is what, that is what Messiah means, is the anointed one. Meaning that God has a mission for him. And when we're anointed, God has a mission for us. He has, he has a calling for us, something that no one else can do quite the way we, we would do it. God, would, God can always find a way if Satan tries to throw up a roadblock or remove one piece from the, from the game board, God can raise up someone else. However, no one else can do it the way we can do it. As David learned, he, as David understood from the beginning, he, he could have replaced Saul right away, but he refused to because Samuel had taught him how important that anointing was. And Jonathan had taught him how powerful it was to love someone as you love yourself, to love your neighbor as yourself. So that is my prayer, my admonition, that we can respect the anointing of the Lord. And we can, when we love others, when we love our neighbors as we love ourselves, that will actually be a good thing, that we will treat them with this level of reverence of some of someone who either has or potentially could have an anointing from God. And we will always respect that in ourselves. And all of that respect and love will point us towards our Savior, as does the, the story of, of David and Jonathan and Saul and Abigail. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.